Welcome everyone to The Demand Side. I'm your host, Edward Brown. On today's episode, we're talking about global inequality and the challenges of a more unequal world. Here to discuss is our very special guest, Professor Branko Milanovic. Dr. Milanovic is a presidential professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and a senior fellow at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. Prior to academia, he served as a lead economist in the World Bank Research Department for almost 20 years and as a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace here in Washington, D.C. Professor Milanovic's main area of research is income inequality, inequality within individual countries as well as globally. He has written extensively on the subject, but two books I feel I should mention since we're going to be discussing them today are The Haves and the Have-Nots, A Brief and Idiosyncratic History of Global Inequality, which was translated into seven languages and selected by the globalist as the 2011 Book of the Year. And his most recent book, Global Inequality, A New Approach for the Age of Globalization, which addresses the economic and political issues of globalization, including the redefinition of Kuznets cycles. Professor Milanovic, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Professor, we have quite a bit to, to cover today, but let's. how about we just start by outlining for our listeners how we should go about thinking about global inequality and how within-country and between-country inequality fit into the, the global inequality picture and also why we should care about global inequality in the first place. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it is. It's a good question. Let me try to explain that because it's um, uh, first time at uh, first uh, impression may be confusing, but in reality, it really all fits together reasonably well. Let me start by sort of defining what everybody understands and everybody knows, which is the within national inequality. So it's inequality within each individual country. That's actually general unit of of investigation. It's a country size, and there is a reason for that because. The assumption is that the countries have <clears throat> policy tools. So in other words, they are policy tools, whether it's education or health or uh, social transfers or taxation, which exist at the level of each individual country. So a country uh, is a natural unit to study inequality. Obviously, you can study inequality within states in the United States. You can study it also within cities. But, you know, the tools of affecting inequality are obviously at the level of the central or federal government, depending whether the, the state is federal or unitary. So that's kind of easy. Then put to that, compa- combine that with the following idea, which is often uh, termed under, in economics, the idea of um, convergence. Convergence in, in economics or growth economics means that in principle, we would expect the countries that are poorer to have a higher rate of growth, everything else being the same. The reason for that is that, the, or at least the argument goes like that, is that the countries that are poor actually can imitate those that are richer, so it does not require for them as much effort to be able to technologically improve themselves. I think that's also pretty obvious. It's also true that we did not have a convergence very often, but at least theoretically, that's something that should happen. So if you put these two things, then you essentially are saying in the first one, why look at about inequality between individuals, the second one, I look at inequality between mean incomes between different people. I mean, basically, average individual in the U.S. versus average individual in China or Mexico or elsewhere. 
Well, when you put all of this together with the means from each country on which you superimpose the distributions for each country, and you did that for like 130 countries that I basically work with now, you basically then have global inequality, which is inequality between all individuals in the world. Uh, now, it's a big statement because I don't have and we don't have the data from seven and a half billion people in the world. Right. But what we do, we have household surveys which are representative for each country. So we have basically samples from each country. So we have these means that I already said, so you can you put them there. And then you superimpose distributions that are based on household surveys that are representative. And that's how you have the global inequality. So that would be the definition. Okay. So why do you think that, uh, for the most part, people haven't been really concerned about global inequality? Um, is, it, is it because that in some sense there, there isn't all that much that individual countries can do about it because, you know, for within country inequality, you know, we, we, we know of, you know, the, the remedies, they're pretty straightforward prescriptions leaders can, you know, implement to, to, to bring down inequality within their country if it's, if it's too high. But when we talk about global inequality and the, the collaboration among many, many economies, many nations, many leaders, um, you know, things can get more difficult, right? Well, things get definitely more difficult. It's actually, uh, first of all, let me put like a very, very strong statement that I would qualify a little bit. But nobody can do anything about global inequality. It's not a job of any individual. Actually, practically, it is not job of any individual to do anything within, about within national inequality. Even people like, uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos cannot change U.S. inequality, which, of course, is my beef and disagreement with many people when they talk about, you know, either rich people or individuals making a difference. They cannot. Uh, you know, inequality is basically driven by uh, uh, within countries. It's driven by technological change, globalization, and then policies. But policies are really policies of the government. It's not really decisions of individuals. So much less can individuals do anything at the global level as individuals, nor can countries, nor do they really care. Does the United States uh, care about uh, global inequality? No, it's actually too diffuse, too, too big a topic, unclear, and so forth. Uh, it's a little bit different from global poverty because there you can say, okay, I've got so many people who are below $1 a day, so at least there are some policies that can actually technically help them. But global inequality, no. Uh, but does it mean that it's not important? No. And why does not mean that it's not important is because global inequality actually feeds into a many other things that we don't put under the heading of global inequality. If you have now the catch-up of China economically, technologically, and uh, you know, in practically many respects, it does actually redefine the world. It defines, redefines the role of China redefines the, the role of the West and the United States. So you can immediately see that the reduction of global inequality, which is actually brought by growth of China, has tremendous political and economic consequences. Or take another example, the fact that Africa has not been able to catch up. Most of the countries in Africa are now really even poorer with respect to Europe than they were 50 years ago, has tremendous implications on uh, uh, migrations flow, migration flows from Africa to Europe. 
So it, that's why I think it's important to realize that while we cannot say that global inequality is as important, I mean, in an obvious way, the way that within national inequalities are, it, they, it, global inequality has tremendous, you know, implications. And let me put the last point because it really is important to see the rise of China within that historical context. Uh, if you go back to 1820, when our actual num numbers really start about global inequality, uh, before that, you had relatively low global inequality because the differences in incomes between, you know, what became later very developed part of the world, uh, England in, in particular, and then the rest of Western Europe and then North America, was not very different from the rest of the world. Well, then it became very different. Throughout the 19th century, you have really continuous increase in inequality. Well, what does it mean? It means that actually, as many economic historians have put it, Pierre Ries in particular from Malquote, he said never in the history has the difference in income levels and military and political power been as great as then between one part of the world, small part of the world, which eventually conquered the rest of the world. So you see there again, it was really uh, 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 inequality, global inequality, which actually played uh, played a key role. So does does greater global inequality mean uh, more frequent crises, either you know economic or political, or is it that you know greater inequality in in rich countries creates this this spillover effect in a more globalized world? Because it seems that you know too often you know we here in the in the U.S think that, you know, that we say, oh, okay, inequality, you know, it really isn't that bad because, you know, while we, you know, may have made inequality worse within country uh, over the last few decades, you know, we're making the lives of those at the bottom better. They're getting more purchasing power. You know, they're, they're, they're further away from the poverty line. Is this sort of a, a dangerous way to, to view inequality? Uh, let me uh, sort of address the second question that you asked. I mean, first is actually uh, when it comes to within national inequalities, uh, U.S. inequality has gone up since 1980. So there is no doubt about that. And by whatever measure you use, it has gone up. Um, and also the social mobility has gone down. So really all of th these things kind of fit together. Now, when inequality goes up within nation, uh, does not mean that actually poverty is up, simply because these are two different things. It's like uh, if you say, you know, the day is sunny, it does not mean that it's necessarily warm. You know, these are two different things. So for sunniness, we have one indicator. For, you know, heat, we have another one. So the same is true here for poverty. Actually, U.S. incomes have generally risen. So practically at every point of the distribution, if you compare, I think actually not practically, actually at every point of distribution, if you compare today with 1985, let's say, you would find an increase. Now that increase is the highest at the top and that's why inequality went up, but it was not zero or it was not negative at the bottom. So it was positive. It was about, I had recently discussion about the US middle class and uh, yeah, it, obviously nobody denies that actually it went up approximately 30% over these 30 years. The question is the following, is 30% sufficient? Right. Is 1% per year a reasonable growth rate when you see that somebody above you has risen by, you know, actually the top 1% has risen by 80 to 
then these gaps in absolute terms have become even larger because the guys at the very top had you know, much higher incomes to start with. And then uh, the issue becomes, and actually that's I think very clear in the case of the, of the US middle class, not only are the top people in the US really way ahead of you, and they were ahead of you to start with, but now they're even more so, but you do have, and that's where global inequality comes into the play, you have a feeling, not unreasonable feeling, of competition with people in other parts of the world who are willing to do your job at much lower price, I mean, much lower wage. And that, of course, is, you have really, I mean, you're basically, and I understand the position of many middle classes in the rich world, you're really basically between, put between the, you know, rock, I mean, what is this called, rock and a hard rock place, and, place yeah. uh, and a hard, uh, what is this, still uh, uh, and horrible, let's call it, uh, because you actually have the competition from behind, these people who are catching up with you, and they're displacing you, and you have a rather indifference from the top because they don't want to change the political or economic system that actually works in their favor. So, you know, uh, improvement in real incomes is not sufficient per se to actually say that there is no political issue. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how much inequality actually exists and, and, and how you've talked a little bit about how, how, it's, how it's measured by uh, you know, social, social scientists in general, but can you give us a, a picture of, you know, the, the level of income of those in the the global one percent, the global ten percent, the the middle, and then and then those at the bottom, um, and, and also like how 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 today's level of global inequality compares to that of of past decades. Okay, let's start with, uh, I, I have not actually looked at the most recent numbers, but, you know, broadly speaking, I know the numbers, obviously. Uh, I, let, let's start with the United States. And actually, that's interesting because we now had all the presidential candidates releasing their, uh, you know, uh, numbers and so on uh, about taxation. So the U.S. approach when, when it comes to fiscal data, to the tax data, is to look at the income level of each tax unit. Now, the tax unit is a house, generally in the U.S. is a household. Obviously, you can file separately, as you know, but very few people do that because it's not advantageous. So people file as units. Uh, that's all, from economic point of view, it's a little bit misleading because you can have a unit with like a husband and wife or, you know, two partners and five kids, and you can have a unit with only two of them, and that would be actually considered the same because there is no adjustment for family size. Normally, when we do work, uh, including with U.S. data, we work with adjustment for the family size. But in the public perception and when, when people release this data, they are basically for the you know, whole tax unit. So if you look at, for example, Biden, which is actually interesting, he released the newest uh, numbers, which are actually lower than the previous years, but they're about one million for him and his wife. And that basically places him in fiscal data at the edge, or actually I think in the lower part of the top 1%. You know, the top 1% really goes for an incredible range because you practically have no end to on the right, on the right end side, you know, in the distribution. So 1 million is, is basically there. Uh, to give you an idea, of course, that, that uh, the, uh, for the U.S., I think for the, you know, the, the, the median would be, I think, about 55 or 60,000. So that's the kind of a range. 
Now, when you take the U.S. numbers and put them in a global perspective, uh, they are high numbers. And even people who are at the very bottom of the U.S. income distribution, which, as I said before, we prefer and we do it on a per capita basis precisely to avoid that problem that I mentioned before, uh, then you have even the bottom of the U.S. distribution somewhere around 65th, approximately 65th, 67th, 70th percentile of the world, meaning that two-thirds of the population of the world are below what is kind of lowest U.S. income. doesn't mean lowest. There is always somebody who would have a, like zero income in the U.S., but I'm talking about a, lot, a relatively large group of people. Let's take the bottom 5%. So they are not poor by global standards. And just once, like, then you, say, you can ask, okay, so what is really the global median? The global median is relatively low, and that's actually what is important to realize. Even when you adjust for the differences in price levels, so that Indian, uh, like a median person, has the adjustment because the prices in India are lower, you still end up with something which is, we now work it in terms of uh, per day, $6 per day. So you actually work out, layer multiplied, you know, six, maybe and a half dollars per day, you, you end up with something like $3,000, you know, annually or lower. So that would be the mean, so it is, uh, the, uh, the median. So it's really very low from the Western point of view. And we're the most angry. <laughs> <laughs> we're relatively, we're very rich and, and we're still very angry. And I had, I had uh, Mark Blythe on the show and we talked a little bit about his new book, Angrynomics. And Angrynomics, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's unreal. Um, well, you, you note in your book, The Haves and the Haves Not, that, uh, that, that even if every country in the world achieved, you know, full egalitarianism with regard to the income distribution, essentially, you know, total equality uh, within the country, that, that global inequality would be reduced by only seven genie points. This is because, you know, between country inequality is so high. Um, but you also note that in your book on, on global inequality that for the first time since the Industrial Revolution, um, global inequality is not being driven by inequality between countries. Can you talk a little bit about this and, and, and give a picture of what we've seen um, in, in, in recent decades that has, has caused the gaps between countries to narrow? Yes, actually, the, what has caused the gap between the countries to narrow and has reduced global inequality, because to go back to the first question, when I explained, I put like every country at the kind of with a vertical line with their mean. Now, how far these vertical lines are from each other really is very important because as we were just saying, you superimpose distributions on top of them. So if these lines are very close to each other, then the overall global inequality would be basically a bunch of <laughs> distributions superimposed on top of each other. They would overlap a lot, so they would not be that much of inequality. But if you have really these lines very much far apart, then when you superimpose distributions, Sometimes they don't even touch each other. You know, the, the richest people in like, uh, you know, country like uh, Malawi may be poorer than the, than the, uh, may be poorer than the poorest people in Denmark. Right. So then what has happened is that uh, since approximately the last decade of the 20th century, 
uh, with uh, acceleration of growth in Asia, again, particularly China, but also in India, and I will come later to say a few words about the really key role that now India is beginning to play. Uh, you have had these large countries, because it's important to be large. If Chad is converging to the United States income, that's good for Chad, but it really doesn't make much of a difference for the world, simply because there are few people. But if China converges, and India, and Indonesia, Vietnam, and so forth, it makes a huge difference because they move together lots of people. You know, So that lots of these people then start really converging with Western incomes. And that's what happened since uh, approximately 1995, let's say. We had the data from actually going back to 1988, but basically by, by early 90s, mid-90s, that tendency is very clear because you have a continuation of high growth of China, then you have really India moving uh, up very strongly from the, what they called, uh, used to call the Hindu rate of growth of 4% to growth rates of 7 or 8 and of course you had Vietnam as well and so forth. So then they, these, these countries by converging, which means they're still far from the West, but they are actually getting closer. They reduce global inequality simply because they move up in that order, like pecking order, lots of people. So that was really something which was behind the, the global inequality decline. On the other hand, and that's a, a sort of an offsetting element, we have had in the 1990s and even in the early 2000s, we have had an increase in the national spreads, so in these superimposed distributions. So that actually offsets the, the gains that you have made from the you know, vertical lines getting closer. So we do have two movements, and the second movement, of course, makes many people unhappy, including people in China, when they are unhappy with high inequality. They may be very happy with growth, but China is a country with serious levels of inequality between the regions, between urban and rural areas, and so on. So that's important to realize that we have a decline in global inequality. It's driven by the countries getting closer to each other, especially large countries. And we, at the same time, had an increase in within national inequalities, although that last increase really has kind of moderated in the last 10 years. Since the global financial crisis, we don't have a clear evidence of rising within national inequalities that we had uh, before. Right. Yeah. So I think uh, moving on a little bit, that was, that was excellent. Um, I think something that, that everybody's trying to figure out is you know, is there a, a definitive relationship between globalization and global inequality? Um, you know, in your book on global inequality, you note that, you know, the, the global uh, Gini coefficient has decreased from 72 in 1988 to 70 in 2008, um, a period which we saw, you know, globalization really sort of take off. Wouldn't this suggest that globalization has in fact reduced global inequality or is it that or is it simply that global inequality peaked in the late 80s and there was really nowhere to go but down because you know in the, in the, the 20 the 21st century pre presents a very different view of our you know 20th century idea of first second third world countries we now have you know a, a, a no second world and we have you know, Africa, you know, shifting into, you know, a, a, a new fourth world category, um, which, you know, would suggest that inequality has, has actually gotten worse during the, the globalization period. How would, you, how should we look at, 
the, the current state of inequality and, and globalization's impact. Okay, let me go back to first what you said. I, I think actually uh, I tend to believe, to argue that globalization had a lot to do with the reduction in global inequality. That's based on the argument that globalization was an important element. I'm not saying maybe the only, but it's an important element which led to the acceleration of growth of Asian countries. So if you believe that there is a positive correlation between uh, uh, globalization and higher growth rates of those countries, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that globalization was responsible for the reduction of global inequality uh, simply because the reduction of global inequality follows by definition from the uh, high rate of growth or actually higher rate of growth in Asia than in the rich world. So that's what I think actually. Then uh, saying that, actually, that, that the level of global inequality was so high that it couldn't go up, it's really not true actually. Inequality can go up still, you know, there is no uh, limit to it. Sure. So what's, what happened is really what is the reduction. Uh, now, it is very different, as you said, in 21st century compared to the 20th and the 19th. I have a nice slide that actually kind of illustrates that very strikingly into three periods. And that's why I will explain now why we are now in the third historical period, really globally speaking, historical period in the last 200 years. The first period from 1820 to the really World War I was essentially uh, very clearly characterized by increased in global inequality, driven by the rising differences in mean country incomes. You know, England, US became so much richer than uh, India or China or Africa. And at the same time, rising inequality within nations, think of the very fact that, for example, English inequality went up through most, throughout most of the 19th century. That's why you have socialist writers and Marx, and that's something I'm working on, um, writing now. So you had two forces really both pushing global inequality up. You had an increase in between nations, inequality, and you have within each individual nation, you had rising inequality as well. Then you come to the World War I and this whole inter, interregnum as the really basically interwar period. And then the whole, uh, practically the entire, what we called the short 20th century, basically from 1914 to 1989, is characterized by extremely high levels of global inequality because you had an increase and then you have a plateau. And that plateau really lasted for a long time. Uh, and that plateau was the time when I was born, many people were, of course, born at that time. It was a kind of, a, to some extent, it seemed to me, to us, natural uh, um, distribution of the world or breakdown of the world into three groups. There was the first world, which was capitalist. There was the second world, which was lower in terms of inequality in income, but that was socialist. And then the third world, which was also lower in terms of average income, and really regrouped all the uh, other, like what used to be called uh, tricontinental, which was uh, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And uh, the peak of that world, really, of that type of inequality, of that type of, of structural or hierarchical uh, inequality, was probably around 1970s. And uh, for those who might remember that actually, without the people realizing it in those terms, because the data didn't exist then, 
uh, that was the, the time where, for example, Mao was arguing that uh, the, the third world is the proletariat of the world and the bourgeoisie of the world was the first world. But you know, this is very different from Marx's concept, which doesn't have a concept of bourgeoisie being in one country. It has a concept of every country having its own bourgeoisie. Right. But why was it, why did it make sense for Mao uh, and for others, actually, Samir Amin, for example, and others, because the structure of the world was such that actually that the rich countries, even poor people in rich countries were relatively rich. And that ended, as I was saying in a previous question or answer, ended basically by the end of the 20th century with the rise of Asia. So now we have the situation that these between inequalities are diminishing and within national inequalities basically are going up. Although, as I said, when you look at the very short periods, they are not, like, they are not going up since 2008. But that's a very different dynamic, as you can see, in these three periods. And that's why I argue, you know, we always like to think that we live always in a special time. But in this case, if you look over 200 years, the numbers, they, you know, they don't lie in the sense that we, this is the best numbers we can get. You do really notice that this period in the last 25 years is very different. And it does actually is a counterpart, essentially. That's why I introduced um, uh, Industrial Revolution before. It's a counterpart to what happened in the 19th century with the rise of the West. Now, this is the rise of Asia. So it's a counterpart to what happened before. Right, right. You, uh, you've talked about in your research that there are uh, generally two forces that, that bring down inequality, benign and malign forces. Can you talk a little bit about these? You know, what effect do, do, do these have and, and what are some examples of, of periods where global inequality was reduced as a result of benign forces? Because you know, some economists believe that it's, it's only the, the malign forces that, that bring down inequality. Right. This, this refers to within national. So because for global inequality, as I said, the, the forces that bring it down or up are interaction between convergence and what happens to within countries. Uh, but the two forces benign, what I call benign and malign forces, are really um, forces that I discuss in the context of uh, within national inequality. Uh, let me start with the benign forces because they're pretty straightforward and I think they actually have done a job in the past and they would do the job in the future as well. Uh, one of them is a rising level of education. Rising level of education means that people with very high level of education uh, have less of a premium on education simply because there are, there are more of them. So the gap between them and people without education diminishes. And secondly, at some point actually technically, and it's actually an interesting question to, want to ponder, uh, everybody could have relatively high level of education. We know now that actually some countries are at 14 years of education. They're really uh, coming to the ceiling of what is feasible. You cannot have everybody, you know, with, uh, you know, PhDs. I mean, technically you could, but even if you had, you would just increase it by another two years. So, uh, so that force has really played a very strong role uh, everywhere, not only in Western countries, it has played role in socialist countries, it has played role in Brazil, for example. So everywhere we find that. Um, uh, so that's, that's one of them. Second uh, uh, benign force, which is sort of, it's not playing much of a role now for the reasons that 
different is the reduction of the uh, returns on capital. Uh, uh, capital was always historically very concentrated. So if you have a high return on capital, which means high profit or high rate of interest and high return on div I mean, dividends and so on, you essentially are distributing money in such a way that you give more of that money to the top. Uh, many economists, including, for example, Kuznets, very famous economist, or Jan Timbergen as well, believed, and Marx believed, and Ricardo believed, that in the movement, historical movement, generally, uh, capital would become more abundant, and by being more abundant, the return on capital would go down. So that would be a benign force which would reduce inequality. Well, in a short run, and I mean, medium run, when you look at the US, with the changes which started with Reagan, uh, there was an increase in the capital share. So that actually sort of that, that force worked the other way and partly explains the increase in inequality in the United States. But that also implies that if you have policy action that would actually uh, reduce returns by basically taxing them, and which goes, like, leads me back to the issue of taxation that we have seen with Trump and Biden, if you had equal treatment of capital income as ordinary income as you had it like 40 years ago in the United States, that would be certainly a force that would reduce uh, uh, inequality within, within the country. And then, of course, you have policy decisions like, you know, uh, taxation and others. And then finally, there is another force, which is a demographic, which also happens that you, when you have aging of the population, you also have greater pressure, that has been historically the case, for a greater redistributive role of the state simply because if you know a redistributive role of the state always comes as a result of significant percentage of population uh, particularly order in this case not being able to continue functioning and working so then you, of course you increase social transfers that has happened in all the rich countries in the 50s 60s 70s and now sometimes it has gone too far as now we have quite a lot of reasonable complaints that people of, of baby boomers or others have really, really uh, uh, fashioned the system in such a way that actually they are now much richer than the younger people and that used to be the opposite. So these would be the, the uh, uh, benign forces. And for the malign forces, the argument was, and I will say, I, I intentionally say was because on um, epidemics, for example, the argument was based on the, the effect of the Black Plague in Europe, which indeed led to the increase in real wages because it killed so many people that really labor became scarce. Uh, this is not the case with this pandemic. Uh, first, luckily, it's not killing like 30% of the population. And secondly, we have seen actually the increase in equality with that. And the second argument with the kind of malign forces, because obviously they are bad forces, was the war that was also based on relatively limited evidence of the, uh, the effects of the wars in the destruction, destruction of capital assets, which of course affect the rich more, and uh, inflation, which also affects creditors and creditors tend to be rich. So the decline in inequality was recorded. For example, England is an interesting case, UK rather, in World War I, a significant decline in inequality. Uh, you know, English inequality had never returned, not even close, to the levels of inequality which they had in 1910. That was a, you know, a peak, or, or the data were from 1910, but it could have probably been 1914. And then after that, it went down very significantly because also taxation during the World War I was um, shifted. The burden of taxation went 
on the rich simply because um, uh, you know they are the ones who were able to to fund to finance the war. So that was obviously a malign force, but it led to the reduction of inequality. But it's not always the case. The opposite case, and I'll stop there, is the case of Germany, which during the World War I actually had an increase in inequality. So, you know, these malign forces are not really, uh, I don't think that we can say that they work the same way uh, everywhere. Right, right. You, uh, <clears throat> you talk uh, in your book on, on globalization, about uh, a, a citizenship rent. Um, you said, it, it, quote, it turns out we can explain more than two-thirds of the variability in incomes across country percentiles by only one variable, the country where people live. Just by being born in the United States rather than in the Congo, a person would multiply her income by 93 times. Uh, this seems like a, a gap that could never close. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier that they're, they're not really, you know, all that many things that we can do to, you know, reduce global inequality. Is there, you know, any normative statement of how we could, you know, get these countries to converge more? I mean, is it, you know, is it aid to poor countries to help them grow? Or is it bringing down, you know, within, you know, country inequality in the rich countries? Um, you know, what, what do you think is the best, best path or, you know, is there a path? You know, that question is really the question of what would uh, accelerate the growth of poor countries. Uh, and if you look at the, what was recent history that we were talking before about China and Asia, it seems to me to bring Africa to redo what Asia did is really following the policies that many Asian countries did and that many economists believe would be very difficult to do in Asia. You know, uh, uh, Myrdal, who won the Nobel Prize in economics later, had this famous book that was called The Asian Drama, where he basically said and was worried that uh, Asia, because of high population and um, uh, pressure on land, would never be able to, uh, to converge. Well, it turned out to be wrong. So our pessimism is about Africa can also turn out to be wrong. But let me highlight one issue with the citizenship rent that many people um, sometimes they don't like to face. Uh, the citizenship rent simply means that uh, uh, one way to look at that is that actually it means huge pressure on migration. Because obviously, if you can multiply your income by 93 times, uh, you would rather not live in Congo, but you would come to the United States. Right. But second issue is really more philosophical. And that's also what I mentioned in the book and more recently in Capitalism Alone, my newest book. Uh, it's a philosophical, a political philosophy, but also philosophical issue. It's the question, that's why I call it the rent. Is it, it's a question, do people, by simply being born in a country like the United States, do they, quote, unquote, deserve to be 93 times richer than somebody in Congo? So that's a really a question that we have to ask. And what is actually interesting there is to make a following sort of parallelism. When you are born in the U.S., you are born, for example, or any country, you are born to rich parents, very rich parents. There is a general presumption, even if people don't like inheritance taxation, but there is a general presumption that you should not really enjoy all of that advantage. Somehow, you know, there should be level playing field so that maybe that, you know, through... Um, public education, through inheritance system, through some transfers, 
even people who are born to poorer parents are maybe more made more equal. Well, uh, there is not such a presumption, there is no such presumption when it comes to uh, uh, between national inequalities. Partly, and that's actually why the political philosophers originally got very much interested in my kind of numerical stuff, is because they always discussed that, but they never had numbers. And uh, uh, then the issue becomes, why is that the case? Is it that actually there are some special um, things that citizens of a given country share? They elect the government, they decide on economic policy, they actually basically through generations have built up the country. So that inequality or inequity is acceptable. Uh, so that actually leads us, and I don't have an answer because it's a very difficult question, but actually what it does, it puts on the table really a big philosophical issue, which is whether inequality of opportunity is limited by the nation state. Because it would be very difficult for anybody, even you take the right-wing people in the U.S., nobody is really arguing against, against equality of opportunity within the U.S. Right. They can actually argue that maybe taxation would make it worse for you, but, whatever, but they would not, as a prior statement, say, I hate equality of opportunity. Nobody will do that. But when it comes to a global level, then the situation is different. So that actually, I think that, that we have to put that issue on the table and say, uh, really sort of think about ourselves. Why is it different? As I said, there are arguments, there are political philosophers like Nagel who actually argue, you know, if you don't share citizenship, that the rest, there is no obligation of any sort except humanitarian towards the rest of the world. There are others who are called cosmopolitans. Um, some of them continue from one strand of thought, which was from John Rawls in his book, A Theory of Justice. And they actually believe that that argument is not particularly valid. But in any case, that is really an issue that is, uh, I think, worthwhile. And it is being obviously discussed by political philosophers. And I think economists, I have to say, I was the first one to have calculated and done that, have so far, with few exceptions, contributed very little to that topic because it was not really at the forefront of interest of economists. Yeah. Yeah. You've, uh, you've noted in the past that only growing economies can tackle uh, inequality through policies like education, social pro protections, uh, greater political participation. Um, if, if this is true and, and the data you've provided um, in your books you know, would say that it is, um, then how will we be able to tackle global inequality when growth rates you know, fall or continue to fall? in the, de the developed world, you know, thankfully growth in China and India have sort of, you know, been our heroes and helped in recent years. Um, you know, you, you call them the, the, the great equalizers. Um, but what would happen if growth slowed in, in those countries as well? Um, you know, how would that affect the, the trajectory of global inequality? Um, you know, or, is, is forecasting global inequality just impossible because there are so many moving parts? Yeah, there are so many moving parts. So it's really difficult, especially it is, there are so many moving parts right now because of the COVID. Uh, but I, I, have, I want to just to be very clear uh, to say that I'm a big uh, proponent and, uh, of uh, growth. You know, growth is absolutely indispensable for the reduction of poverty. 
and particularly growth in poorer countries is really an inequality-reducing, global inequality-reducing strategy. And we see, I think, now when we see these really uh, huge declines in most countries in the world, practically all of them, we see how unrealistic, in my opinion, are people who argue for so-called degrowth. Degrowth, I think, is an entertainment for the rich people who basically like to think that actually they would, they really would like to live more pleasant lives. And they actually, they very often have no idea about first the numbers. You know, the idea, which is implicit in my opinion, in many of much of their thinking, although it is not put on, on paper, so you cannot really pin it down, uh, is that their view is that if we were to reduce income of like the top 1%, of which they are globally are, but they don't like to think of them as, as global top 1%. Right. Uh, they think that that basically would redistribute sufficient amount of money to the others, which means like practically, you know, 80 or actually technically 99% of the population of the world to, for, to enable everybody to be at some level which they consider a reasonable level. The thing is that the reason, what they consider from the Western point of view as a reasonable level is a level which is extremely high globally. So that the level, I forget, I was writing about it, I think it's is the 73rd percentile of the global income distribution. So you cannot take the current envelope, I'm talking about before the crisis here, the, the current envelope of GDP and say, okay, I'm going to stop growing and I would make everybody come to a reasonable level of income simply by redistributing from the top 1%. There is just simply not enough money. I mean, it's not right. like a, 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 it's a, it's a no-brainer. It's just you calculate the numbers. And so that actually puts them in a very uncomfortable position when you point this out to them, because then if there are two possibilities, either we continue growing so the envelope becomes bigger, so actually poorer people also become richer, or you have to go and make a political sort of stand that rich countries basically would have to reduce their GDP by half. Well, we see now what is happening with the US actually going in a, in a significant recession because, before, because of COVID. People cannot survive. They cannot do that. They don't like, like losing 10% of their income. How are you going to politically tell them you should lose you know, 50% of your income? So that's what really puts them in a very uncomfortable position, and that's why I'm very much against the growth, which doesn't mean that I'm against the green, um, uh, you know, uh, green, whether it is Green New Deal or green technological change, but that change has to use the, you know, instruments of economics, which is really basically pricing by taxation, subsidization of the types of energies that we believe are non-polluting and other forms. But it cannot be uh, geared and it cannot uh, aim to uh, sort of stop global growth. So that's, that's my uh, disagreement with that. Yeah. Um, towards, the, towards the end of the haves and the haves and have-nots, you said the key challenge of the 21st century may be summarized as follows how to bring up how to bring africa up how to peacefully bring china in and how to wean latin america off its self-obsession and bring it into the real world um, and doing all this while maintaining peace and, and avoiding ideological crusades do you still see it that way I still see it. Actually, I think my statement on Latin America was too strong, actually. But, uh, 
so I would uh, I would uh, sort of caveat that. So that was not particularly um, motivated. It was motivated by the idea that Latin America, which is interesting, when you take a look at the global inequality, Latin America does not play much of a role despite significant population because it has middling levels of inequality and it has high domestic inequality, which is relatively similar to the global inequality. So it does not play that role. And I think Latin America somehow by these different uh, uh, political shifts between the left and the right has uh, essentially, it seems, that's what I'm trying to justify, not fully, but in part that statement was driven by uh, a sort of an inability to essentially uh, follow a path which would, uh, of course, make it uh, richer, because it, it is really a little bit of a paradoxical that Latin America is so poor than the, than the U.S. It, it should not be the case, you know. Obviously, we talk about Argentina, which is, of course, an extreme case of that, but many other Latin American countries, they should be, and I think they would eventually be, at the level of West European um, uh, income levels. They actually have a population that, that should be at that level. They have technological know-how. So that's what I meant. But the rest, I, I would fully, I would still keep it, you know. Uh, the challenge is indeed to actually have Africa grow at much higher rates, uh, which would be very difficult also because of population growth rates. But as I mentioned before, we were wrong, or people were wrong on, on Asia, uh, for the same reasons, believing that with a high population, you will not be able to <coughs> grow by 7 or 8% that you need to grow. But, you know, in that sense, I think that <coughs> these challenges are, are still um, valid. They are really basically uh, key challenges of the 21st century. And obviously not having a war is, uh, is a big challenge because uh, of the situation compared to the time when I wrote the book, which was only a few years ago, has deteriorated, especially now with the uh, sort of a, what people call maybe the new Cold War between the U.S. and and, and China. So yes, I would still stick stay by, stick by that. I think that the state of Latin America would like to change. Well, two quick questions before we we finish up with a with a question about democratic capitalism. Um, I want to talk about uh, wealth redistribution for for a second and and, and taxation. Um, because we live, because capital is, is more mobile than ever, um, do you think we need to drastically rethink how we tax capital? And, and, and because we, we live in a more globalized world, um, you know, with, with much of the growth in the, the developed countries going to the rich, is wealth redistribution now more important than ever? I think it is it is very important, but it's also very difficult because of the reasons that you mentioned, ability of capital to move, uh, which didn't exist in the past, be, I mean, recent past, because you had capital controls, you often had a lack of comfortability of the currencies, and even technically, it was much more difficult. I mean, you had to either go through all these currency controls or take stuff in your suitcase and like what uh, drug dealers are doing today. So, and then uh, lastly, but not least importantly, you were in those days, I'm talking about 1960s, 70s, you were also very often exposed to the danger or threat of nationalization. These threats have totally gone, disappeared. 
unfortunately, it's the U.S. now that is actually through TikTok and similar things basically reintroducing nationalization. It's really uh, weird, and I'm surprised that people don't mention that. It's de facto, you basically, in this case, you have somebody who comes with a gun to your forehead and says, well, I want you to, to sell me your assets, you know? Right. So, that, you know, that existed, of course, in the 60s and the 70s much more. So that actually limited, again, movement of capital. So I think it's in a really an objective difficulty. And I've talked to sometimes to, you know, guy, people who are really ministers of finance in important countries. And this is really what they face. They, they actually were aware that they wanted to tax capital more, but it was more difficult. That doesn't mean, however, that you don't have still certain tools. And I think these tools include like inheritance taxation, wealth taxation, what Piketty was arguing on a yearly basis. I'm more in favor of inheritance for the reason that John Rawls was in favor uh, because of this level playing field. But you still have certain means. And I think for the U.S., uh, I think now with the every four years we have this brouhaha of taxation because of the presidential elections. But I think they really, it, it highlights, which I'm pessimistic on that, but I think highlights a really fundamental issue with the U.S. tax system. Uh, leaving aside Trump, uh, the fact that uh, Romney paid 12%, you remember that it was, I don't know how many years ago, uh, that, uh, that even uh, Biden, who did actually well, but you know, for a 30% tax rate for the top 1%, is uh, including you know uh, f- uh, federal plus state is 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 a low tax rate. Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, he should be paying under the norm. I'm not saying he sh- in the in this system he's paying rightly thirty, but under a more progressive system, people like him should be paying fifty. Yeah. I, I, so you know it. Uh, you know the whole uh, system. I think is in need of a of a significant overhaul, but because of the vested interests that we all know are there, I just don't see this happening. But uh, so let me then summarize. Yes, it is difficult to tax capital because of mobility, but it doesn't mean that we cannot increase taxation, both on capital and other forms, or equalize taxation, as we were saying before, between capital income and labor. Right. Well, my, uh, my last question uh, for you before, before I let you go. Yeah, we are a little bit on. Um, is probably one that could be covered in an entire entire episode, but let's <laughs> let's try to conquer it the best we can. Is the term democratic capitalism an oxymoron, or is it really something that can be sustained? I don't think it's an oxymoron because the reality is that we do have countries which have, which are democracy in the political space and capitalist in the economic space, so it does exist. Where I disagree with many people is that, again, factually, they are wrong when they start believing that these two things always go together. If you look and actually, you know, you can go and look, for example, Polity Database, and defi- uh, which actually lists countries depending on different levels of democracy, and then say, okay, what do I call capitalists? And go back like 100 years, and you would see that actually the percentage of time that capitalist countries were democracies, I, I think it was less than 50%. Uh, obviously, you had countries like Germany. I'm not talking about Nazi Germany, but I'm talking about the fact that uh, Germany, actually, if you take for Prussia, 
with the exception of the Weimar period, was never a democracy until obviously after World War II. And many other countries, you take Italy, you take Austria-Hungary, you take Chile, you take Brazil, you take even the United States, which of course self-styles itself a democracy, but it was really a slave-owning oligarchy until 1865. So that, that idea that the two things always go together, I think is wrong. But it is not wrong that it is not true that it's an oxymoron because, of course, there are many episodes, many years where actually you had democracy coinciding with, with capitalism. Correct. Well, uh, Professor Milanovic, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. I know our listeners and I have, have learned very much from you, and we thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to join us. Thank you very much, Ed. I was, it was a pleasure. And... Uh, Hope some other time we have it like live, like uh, that we are able to get out of our own apartments and houses again. Exactly. Thanks a lot. Thank, a you. Thank you. If you want to get more Branko Milanovic, two of his books, The Haves and the Have-Nots uh, and Global Inequality, the, a new approach for the age of globalization, are available for purchase on the Demand Sides library page. And if you want to access all of Professor Milanovic's research, visit the Stone Center on Social, Socioeconomic Inequality. Professor Milanovic, thank you again. Uh, well, that's it for us here at The Demand Side. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Global Inequality and the Path Forward with our very special guest, Branko Milanovic. Make sure to check out all the episodes of The Demand Side on The Demand Side's landing page wherever you get your podcasts. And don't for forget to visit thedemandside.com for access to opinion pieces, books, news, and videos. Thank you all for joining us today. And remember, if you're forced to choose sides, always choose The Demand Side. Until next time.